Welcome to HIV Frontlines, U.S. Edition, a podcast series from TheBody.com, focusing on frontline workers in the HIV epidemic in the United States. In this series, we'll talk with the dedicated people who work tirelessly to fight HIV, from HIV prevention workers and treatment advocates to outspoken journalists and policymakers. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, please visit us on the web. This is Kelly Taylor reporting for TheBody.com, and welcome to Frontlines. Today we have Monique Howard, the Executive Director of the New Jersey Women in AIDS Network in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Good morning, Monique. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you for having me. So let's get started. When did you begin working in the AIDS field and why? It's a long story. Just to give a background of who I am and, and how I got here, I graduated from college in 1989 and I started working at a reference laboratory, which is now Quest Diagnostic. It was at the time MetPath Labs in New Jersey, Peterborough, New Jersey. I worked in a laboratory specifically identifying mycobacterium, which is the organism that causes tuberculosis or TB. That's my specialty. And we were getting a lot of specimens from the largest city hospitals in New York and large urban hospitals in New Jersey. And we, I started noticing that my department and virology were sharing a lot of the same specimens. Um, and virology was doing antigen testing for, for HIV and a lot of the HIV tests as well very early on. And my specimens that they would borrow would be positive for HIV antigens, and their specimens that they would borrow from us would be positive for TB. So we were starting to look at the relationship between TB and HIV, and this was 89, 90, 91. And lo and behold, since we're grunge workers in the basement of a whatever, no one pays us any attention, but we, we saw that there was an inter- interconnectedness between HIV and TB. And when I first started working at the lab, we had... 60 specimens was an average day to test for TB. 100 was a high day. By the time I left, which was about three years later, 220, 250 specimens were the average day. And 300 was a heavy day. So we quadrupled the amount of specimens that were coming in. And then we also quadrupled the number of specimens that were positive. And I really was interested in what is this HIV thing? I was born and raised in New York, but the impact was a lot bigger than the media was paying attention to. Went back to get my master's degree. I have a master's in public health, community health education, because I really wanted to examine the role HIV was playing, particularly in communities of color, because that's where these hospitals were. That's most of the people that were using the city hospitals. At the time, were in communities of color, people of color. And that's where I started. I took some fabulous classes, had a wonderful internship at North Beth Israel Hospital in New Jersey. Um, so started working with women and, and HIV risk reduction programming at that time. And then worked with some federally funded researchers who created curricula around HIV risk reduction, um, pregnancy prevention, and all other issues that fall under the umbrella of sexuality. I went back for my doctorate in education with a focus on human sexuality and, and program design. Happened to have come across NG1 along the way in my travels. I did my first workshop at one of their conferences in the early 90s. Was excited that the organization was there and ended up on the board and um, in the position of executive director. And I've been here since 2003, February 2003. 
And it's been a wonderful ride thus far. The organization does some phenomenal work. And that's kind of how I got here. I've always been interested in the role that I can play in helping communities of color address the issues of HIV. Tell me what the New Jersey Women in AIDS Network does and the programs that your organization has. The Jersey Women in AIDS Network, or NJ1, has been around since 1988. Um, and it was started from a small group of service providers because they understood the role that HIV was going to play in the lives of women, particularly women of color in the state of New Jersey. And so very early on, it started out as a type of service providers organization. It was around capacity building, although that wasn't the, the word to use at the time. But it was to provide women-serving organizations with the skills to manage the influx of women that were going to come in that were HIV positive and to provide aid service organizations with the skills to provide services to the number of women that were going to be coming in. Mm -hmm. And then the numbers began to increase disproportionately, and service providers were not able to handle the number of women that were infected, and we became then a service-providing organization. So by the end of the 80s, we were providing a program called Sister Connect, and Sister Connect was a support group slash life preparation course that was six months long that met twice a month for about four hours. The question is, why did it last four months? Because that was the amount of time a woman had from diagnosis to death. And Sister Connect was the bridge between that and we still have some graduates that are alive, so we have some graduates that are, you know, 23, 24 um, years into the making of NJ1, and that's what it did. It provided a level of support and encouragement and empowerment that other organizations didn't do. And so um, my work here is not necessarily just about creating a program, but creating a program that embraces women and, and supports them throughout their life of HIV and living. It's so interesting because you're talking about the late 80s and having these programs for women, and yet the media really didn't make the connection, that people still didn't really get mm-hmm. that AIDS was a woman's issue in the 80s. I'm not quite sure they've made it in the 2011s either. Um, But what was going on in the 80s is, you know, unfortunately we spent those 10 years looking for the needle in the haystack and what was the real connection and, and is it these people or those people or whose people and women were able to we're, we're nurturers by, by nature that's what we do we nurture and we take care of and so when we're sick we put it on the back burner to take care of other people so yeah we were infected with HIV but we were taking care of our loved ones and the majority of them are males that were infected with HIV So that's what we were doing. And women's health issues don't get the attention that generic health issues get. And by that, I mean that other health issues that affect both males and females. Um, But the women's specific ones do not get that level of attention. And so um, the attention was brought on the the four H's, hemophiliacs, the heroin addicts, the homosexuals, and the Haitians. That's where the attention was. And the attention was not on women. And it still isn't. It's just funny is that we are commemorating the 30th anniversary of HIV, Mm -hmm. you know, last Sunday. 
and the face of AIDS has evolved over the years or has been more inclusive over the years. And here we are still. I mean, if you look at the kind of 30th anniversary coverage that's kind of happened in the media, even women took a backseat to that. It's extremely frustrating. Why do you think when it comes to prevention and treating women with HIV that women and gender issues continues to take a backseat? It's scary to think that we're just not important, but I will relate that to what the political climate here in the state of New Jersey. And out of all of the issues to fight over, we're fighting over family planning. Out of all the attention that the budget needs or that the state needs or that the economy needs, it's family planning. Even at the federal level, it comes down to the cervix. And that's why we can't settle a federal budget because of family planning money. And so when women do receive some type of attention, it's an attack. But, yeah, we're we're just always backburnered. Why? I don't know. That's historically how things have been. The thing that I'm challenged by is that women's groups can't get together for one unified voice of, listen to me, I'm talking now. And then from that, you can hear our individual issues, but we're not even being heard as a collective. It really boggles my mind when I see feminist groups who just completely are disassociated, disconnected, and don't take on HIV. You know, it's Mm -hmm. as much as you talk about family planning and the right to have birth control. You can't talk about unprotected sex and not talk about HIV. And yet I see so many reproductive health groups and so many feminist groups completely act as if HIV is not a feminist issue. It's boggled my mind for years. I don't understand it. There's no glamour in it. So in the state of New Jersey, you you look at the numbers and you say that, you know, one out of three people that are affected with HIV is a female. And out of that number, 65% of women that are reported with HIV are, are African-American. And so in New Jersey, it's a black and brown disease and it's disease of women. Now, individually, those pockets of those people, black, brown, women, and poor, may get some money. But you put them all together, and you get nothing. Our elected officials don't even address issues of black, brown, and poor. So there's a a myriad of reasons why HIV falls under there. There's no glamour in it. You can talk about pregnancy. You can't talk about the how you got pregnant. And so we still just don't even talk about sex. When you're talking about HIV, you're talking about a sexual behavior. You're talking about perhaps some drug use behaviors. Nobody wants to talk about those two topics specifically enough to address HIV because there's no good outcome. We do international HIV, and that's a lot of what we hear. So we're not even going to address the issues of HIV here in this country. We'll address it outside. And I'm not pitting the national – it's a pandemic. I'm not pitting the national against the international, but we're not even getting little bits of dimes dropped in the backyard. Cause it's, no, it's, it's a frustration. It's a, it's a huge frustration, and I think that – Like you said, it's not about pitting one epidemic in the U.S. and and comparing it to what's happening in South Africa. But there is a certain, like like you said, it's not in our backyard. It's a way for us to deflect. But there still is this belief that, you know, oppression and and a history of systematic oppression does not affect people. And so if you have HIV or you've contracted HIV, the disease is looked at as you did it to yourself. It's a very moral statement. Because people just believe, oh, you've, you've, given, you've been given all the information and you still chose to do X. And so mm-hmm. in this day and age, if you have HIV, you did it to yourself. Why should I feel sorry for you? Absolutely. And this is an ongoing attitude well, in this country. 
the other side of that is there's still a collective that don't believe they need to even address or be aware of HIV because it doesn't happen to my type of people. It only happens to your type of people. And so what did you do if you're from my inner circle to put yourself at risk for HIV? So there's still doctors that won't test women, white women from upper class for HIV. Well, you know, know, I I had a problem. I went to a gynecologist and for people who are listening, I'm an African-American woman between the ages of 25 and 34. And so when I went to the gynecologist to get tested, you know, I said, hey, can I get an HIV test? And she said to me, well, what are you doing that you need one? What am I doing that I need one? I just kind of looked at her and I was like, nothing. So, you know, it is about preconceived notions of who gets it, but it's also that are based on race, definitely. But I also think that there are issues around class and how well I articulate myself when I go into the doctor's office that that made her think she's not one of those people. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. I think doctors who don't know anything about HIV when they deal with women, they're completely afraid of what if this woman tests positive? I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. And I'm supposed to know. Right. I'm supposed to link her to care. I don't know what to do. You know, the thing Mm -hmm. is that depending on what test you take, if you get a rapid test, they have to follow it up. All of these things that need to happen. And -hmm. I just kind of looked to her and I was thinking to myself, is she serious? Yeah. You're going to stay right there for all of your care. And I have news for you. That doctor's office is also not going to know what to do with you if you're negative because they have no, hey, keep up the good work, or they have no message. Right. There's nothing. There's there's no no conversation around. And so I wonder how many women, and we hear this all the time, about how many women get lost in the system because Mm -hmm. doctors don't necessarily believe that the women that come in are at risk. I mean, what does at risk mean? You know what? I write grant applications. I'm the, one of the grant writers here at the organization. I have no idea what that means because high risk and risk, and, you know, if you can find your way out of utilizing a label to describe your behavior, then absolutely you're going to use it. If you engage in any of these behaviors, you are at risk. And when I, when I try my best to, you know, you have to use the foundation's lingo to get funded, but that's not what I use in my day-to-day. If you've done anal, oral, or vaginal sex unprotected, you're at risk. I don't then separate you out into high risk, low risk, and medium risk because everybody's definition is going to be different based on how they assess their behavior. And just how people, you know, the psychology of how people make excuses and downplay what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard people say, well, my boyfriend isn't gay, so I'm really not at risk. Really? Or I'm not black. I'm not Mm -hmm. really at risk. I think that this notion of what at risk means needs to shift (laughs) because I think it's holding us back. But it all plays into the morality around the disease. Because if you're the highest risk, society looks at that as you being the most amoral. It's very scary. (laughs) It is. It is very scary. And unfortunately, the scary piece is not going to go away because nobody's just talking about it. This is the one virus or disease that nobody's making noises about, not in large numbers. And so the movement that was the white gay male movement in the early and mid-80s, that piece is gone. And so other communities, and it is communities, it's the community of people of color that are at risk. In New Jersey, it's the community of women that are at risk. Mm-hmm. We need to make that same level of noise. Mm-hmm. I was at a meeting last week, and we were talking about how 
other diseases or chronic illnesses can have a day of come out and get your whatever tested. We can't have that day. Nobody's coming because nobody's coming out to get tested. So the, the shame and the stigma and the silence associated with HIV continues to put us at risk. And we, have, we talked about hiding the HIV testing van because that's what we wanted to do for National HIV Testing Day behind a health fair so that people won't realize that what we really want you to do is get tested for HIV. All the other stuff was incidental. We just wanted to bring you there. So why you got you this and you that tested, and there's an HIV test. We're talking about having to hide HIV. And you don't have to hide your testing vans for anything else. No, it's true. When you read about also, too, the, some of the programs that are happening in the, mm-hmm. uh, the salons, yes. you know, a lot of times when you are dealing with older women, there's a mm-hmm. certain uncomfortable, like they're not very comfortable generally talking about sex. I was interviewed someone a couple of years ago and they were saying how, well, we kind of have to talk about heart disease and then we kind of have to talk about breast cancer and then we kind of stick HIV in there. And it's just like, really? It's 2011. Yeah. <laughs> it just really, really amazes me how far we've come and yet how far we haven't. Yeah. We're not, as, I don't know, we're not angry enough, we're not frustrated enough. Uh, we're not taking to the streets about it. We're not asking our elected officials about it. We're not asking our neighbors. Our do- we're not talking to our doctors about it. Like there's just there's just nothing. It's sad. It's frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it it's, is. It's really frustrating. It just isn't on the radar anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it is, but then it's not. I just don't know how seriously people take it, and I also mm-hmm. think that there's a lot of blame around. Well, gay men, down low men are the ones that have brought it into the community and the women are just mm-hmm. completely taken advantage of and it becomes kind of pitting one community against the other, right. which is very counterproductive. Now, the agency, we are doing something. And so one of the programs that we have, which is our HIV awareness campaign, I stand with NJ1, is about that, is about bringing awareness to HIV. And I'm from a research background, and so I know that awareness doesn't equal behavior change. But you can't work on the behavior change piece if you're still in denial that HIV exists. And so bringing the HIV 101 education and the information and awareness about HIV to the streets and trying to sign up people and hold roundtable discussions around HIV and the issues that are surrounding HIV and bringing the awareness to outside of our choir. Because all aid service organizations, we all have a choir. Um, And when we have an event, our choir comes. But how do we bring it to the masses? And so just being really creative and strategic on how we educate the everyday folks around about HIV and AIDS. And so that's one of our programs. We also, I created a while ago a theory-based uh, Safer Sex Boot Camp, which is a really intensive HIV 101 program intervention that teaches skills, teaches communication skills and continuous skills to reduce the risk of contracting HIV. So those are some prevention initiatives that we have going on that we are hoping you know, we're hoping it works. And, and some of our data does demonstrate that people are reducing the number of partners that they're engaging in sex with, increasing the, the times that they engage in sex and use the condom, or bringing up the topic. That in of itself, for many of our women that we work with, is a big thing, that they can even bring up the topic of HIV. And that also leads me into the next question around what are some of the challenges and obstacles that your clients face in talking about condom use and actually treating and dealing with prevention with women who are 
positive and negative. From the prevention perspective, you know, it's still the can women carry condoms and not be thought of as a slut or promiscuous or however. Will I am says it's tacky to <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Um, that's nice. And you know what? And it and the thing is that it brings me back to Charles Barkley, who has said years ago that he's not a role model. And part of me understood that. He just is going to work. His job just happens to be playing basketball nationally, internationally. So, but he's not a role model. He should not be the male responsible for raising your child. But his voice, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not, is significant. And Will I Am's voice is very significant. There's a level of responsibility and accountability that he has when he says something. And that's something that's very damaging that he said, mm-hmm. that, you know, it's tacky for women to carry condoms. That that's very damaging because the work we do every day is making women feel okay about carrying condoms, about learning how to use them, and about bringing up that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so that one comment just destroys the work that we do that saves the lives of women. Yeah, it does. And so that that's just all of the barriers right there is around our society's support of women who carry condoms and know how to use them and will have the audacity to say, no, I'm not going to have sex without a condom. No, we can have sex, but it's not going to be without a condom. And having a response to all of the excuses that, are out there. I don't have one with me. I, I don't, you know, the store is too far away. It doesn't fit. It's too big. It's too small. It smells. And having responses to all of those that are realistic because we're sex positive. And so, yeah, I want you to have sex at the end of the day, but I also want you to have safe sex at the end of the day. So, How do you address the women where uh, condom negotiation is damn near impossible? Because I think that this is something that we know it exists and mm-hmm. we don't necessarily publicly talk about it mm-hmm. because a lot of people, no matter how much condom negotiation training you are mm-hmm. giving women and no, you know, as much sit down and therapy that you give women, mm-hmm. if their lives are dependent on a man, yes. it does not really, all the talking doesn't mm-hmm. change their outcome. And so how do you personally cope knowing that? doing the work that you do and what do you guys do because so many women are just going to say i can't i absolutely yeah you 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 know what you're absolutely right and there's a lot of i'm not in control of my sexuality issues that many women deal with because of violence or because of just control issues or just the life issues those pieces are really hard and there's no way that a woman who sits in a class for three hours is going to be the pro-condom woman at the end of the day. But there's a whole slew of baby steps. And so one of the things that we do with the network is we create a network that you can keep coming back and call up and, and we will continue to see you and move you toward one condom use. So maybe it's not you use condoms by the end of the month. Can you bring up HIV in the conversation? Can you bring up and still get your needs met? Can you bring up an awareness of what's going on realistically in your relationship in two months? Can you bring up a conversation about condom use and have that being ongoing? 
Can you talk about testing? And so all those pieces are still pieces that are very significant in, in risk reduction. So it's not just, hey, you've done my program, you didn't use condoms at pre, you'll be using condoms at post. That's impossible for me to think that's going to happen. But within what's going on in your life, can we get you to a place where you feel better where you might be able to negotiate at your job for something extra so that maybe you don't have to rely on this person for cable money? That's an awesome point, Monique. Maybe you get another job. Maybe you get the job number two, and maybe you don't have to negotiate hairdresser money. But let's just take those small steps. I had an opportunity to work with a bunch of moms, you know, because we do education all over. So I worked with moms once, and they were multi-cycle public assistance users, mom, grandmom, great-grandmom, all the family, and had no idea that they could function outside of the home at a nine-to-five job because they'd never seen that negotiated before. And we held a facilitator training. We trained these women who live in housing developments to be facilitators of a risk reduction program. And it was 11-day training from 9 to 5. Those women got jobs because they didn't know they could negotiate their life and leave the house and be gone from their children and be gone and still do all the stuff they did during the day. And so it takes, it's the baby steps. And I'm happy to do one-on-one work with women to get them to the baby steps. The, the relationship issues are really, really critical when you're talking about negotiation, kind of use. But you know what? Sometimes when you talk to the guys, the guys say, hey, she never asked. And then the and connections just, need to be made that if you actually better people's lives, mm-hmm. you give them more options. Mm-hmm. And that is such a huge critical point around HIV is changing the lives bettering the lives of people, economic stability, dealing with gender oppression. And these are things that, I mean, we're still trying to get people to admit that like racism <laughs> exists and that it affects people. This is mm-hmm. like a hundred year old argument. Of course it doesn't exist. You have a black president. <laughs> we should just stop complaining. And so then the other piece of it I wanted to talk about too, was that you deal with women and work with women. And that's kind of the major crux of what the organization does. How do you involve men in a conversation because as we just said women still are dealing with gender oppression there are women who Mm -hmm. are dependent on men and so how do you then go to the men and kind of talk about why they need to use condoms you know talking about hiv the importance of getting tested because if they're not part of the conversation it's difficult to really have the impact that we need to have. And so how does your organization include men in a conversation? Not with the same structure as we do with the, with the women. I think that there's a whole bunch of resources for men, and there's very limited resources for women to just come and be. And so my focus is in self-determination and allowing women to just come and be. And from that, learn the lessons that can hopefully reinforce or influence uh, life-saving decisions. Um, When we get with the men, you know, it's just kind of the same type, how can we reduce the rates of HIV? But a lot of the work we do is with the women. Now, I absolutely agree with you that in in the state of New Jersey where, as I said, 33% of the people are infected are women and that it is the the highest mode of transmission in New Jersey is heterosexual contact, that there's a man involved in there somewhere. But I think that there's a different level of preparation that we can do and then bring the men in later on. But we're not even doing the conversation piece. 
And so we're not even, you know, there's agencies that are, and there are women that don't have any place to go to talk about what's going on in a relationship honestly and that I may be at risk, but I don't know. So you have to get that piece first and talking and creating an environment where women can talk openly and honestly about the relationship, about what's going on, about risk and, and risk reduction, and then getting them to feel, still feel good about themselves. And that also talks to the fact that, you know, not every woman living below the poverty line is being abused and, Absolutely. you know, it's forced. There, there's that kind of in-between when you talk about relationships and you talk about people not wanting to lose the man that they're with. And so a lot of times I feel like women, we are socialized to be easy and not easy sexually, but be easy as in don't be so confrontational, be more timid, Um, let the man be the man, not really asking the kind of questions that we need to ask. And I think you don't want to upset the the apple cart. Mm -hmm. No, because if you're too much, he's going to leave. And I think that all these conversations too, you know, I did a round table earlier this year, we talked about this around how the media's obsession with the fact that black women are not married at the Mm -hmm. same rates as other races. And the media continually keeps talking about it and keeps saying that like black women are aggressive and black women are this and black women are that. And that's why you don't have a man. And that's why you can't keep a man. With some of the the women who come in, has that been an issue of fearing that they're going to lose a man? Of not bringing it up? You know, it's it's just a part of how we're raised. So, yeah, it is part of our socialization, so it's there. The piece of, yeah, you're going to be glad you have a man, and that's always going to be there. I mean, do whatever it is you can to keep that one man, because it's like no other man is going to come. And so that type of thinking keeps us in relationships way after we know that they're over. No one else is going to come. I might as well stay. No one else wants me anyway. Or they keep saying there's not a lot of good men out there. I better be happy for the one I have. Or I'm just happy he comes home. I'm happy he comes home. I'm happy he has a job. And he he talks to me like, hello. And that's it. And I just want to also be clear for the audience that this isn't every man. Mm -mm, Not at all. Um, And and, and, And and, it's not every woman either. Right. It's not every woman. But this, you know, we're just highlighting something that's really, really important that Mm -hmm. doesn't get talked about is this notion of you should be lucky you have a man. And the things that we do to put ourselves at risk to keep one. Mm-hmm. And it's depressing. I have to, <laughs> I have to say it's depressing. <laughs> Which also yeah. leads me to my next question is that how do you cope and deal in your own mental health? Because you have a family. Sometimes it's hard to turn off. I know for me, when I leave work, I'm joking around you know I'm completely silly I have a lot of different outlets because if when you do this work it can really get to you so what are some of the strategies that you just deal with with your own mental health around this <laughs> what, what do I do to take care of me that you know what it, yeah the work is really hard and working at this agency and falling in love with some of the women that I have fallen in love with that are sick and suffering and, and, and just trying to manage your life is really emotional and hard. And I leave, I leave heavy. We have an annual conference. We've been doing it for 22 years, and November 3rd and 4th will be our 23rd conference here at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And I spend most of the day on the verge of tears, and, and, most, and then there are just times when I'm not on the verge and I'm just openly crying. And, you know, just to see 
how HIV has devastated some of the women's lives that I've come in contact with over the years. It's amazing. And so it gets hard. And, yeah, I have my extraordinarily silly moments because you have to laugh or else I would spend hours crying. I dig 100% into the lives of my family. Um, my spouse and, and my children are my, my backbone. And so literally when I get into the door, I turn off and I become mommy and, and honey and, and that's it. And then somewhere after the ha- when the house is quiet, I turn back on again. But there has to be a physical on-off switch. And sometimes there are just some days I wake up and I say, I can't do it today, or I'm going to schedule my nervous breakdown for next week. So please don't, <laughs> please don't bother me. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. That will be Monday and Tuesday. Unfortunately, you have to schedule it because you have to see, see what else is on your calendar. But, yeah, exercise, trying to be healthy, and just being aware of when my cup is full and what that means. I have some people that I can call going to wrap this up. I think we've okay. talked about a thousand things, but is there yes, anything else that you want to leave the audience with about the network, about the work that you do, um, about one thing they can do to help a sister or a mother or a grandmother in learning about HIV? I'll take that one. The one thing we can do to save the life of a woman is to embrace each other and protect each other and talk about HIV and we don't talk about our lives anymore and and just be honest with our life and ask for help. Um, The information around HIV is readily available. We spend a great deal of time, as we said earlier, trying to look for my out or that's not me. I don't have to worry about it. That that just, that's you. Um, And so worry about it and put some thought into it and do your research and educate ourselves and then educate someone else. And with that, this interview comes to a close. Thank you, Monique, for speaking with me. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been HIV Frontlines U.S. Edition from The Body. Be sure to check in frequently at thebody.com for the latest news and information on HIV. 